Thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is Frontier Church's podcast where we invite you into the story of a community that longs to be the city's most joyful church in Des Moines. And in today's podcast, Chloe and I talk about justice for the unborn. Particularly, we talk about the overthrowing of Roe v. Wade, and we tackle the issue of justice for the unborn by looking at it and examining it from three different categories, theologically, biblically, and historically, why are Christians passionate about justice for the unborn? Now, before we pull up a chair to the table and invite you into this conversation, we want to pour our hearts out transparently for you. Chloe and I, and the pastors at Frontier Church, are wholeheartedly committed to the pro-life worldview, and that worldview for us spans from the cradle to the grave, which means that we care about justice for the unborn, but this is not an isolated issue. We care about racial justice. We care about socioeconomic justice. We care about environmental justice, and we view all of those issues within the same category, justice and biblical justice. And so this is important to note from the beginning because this is not a political podcast. And towards that end, I want to immediately clarify, because I believe that clarity is kindness, with five affirmations and denials so that there's zero lack of understanding about where we stand when this podcast begins. Five affirmations and denials. First, while we are committed to justice for the unborn, we do not believe that the church necessarily must be identified with a single political party. Though biblical values should inform the way that we vote, the church compromises its witness when it aligns herself with a single political party, because then the church covenants itself with Caesar and loses her power and purity. Our motives, and it's important to us that you know this, our motives in this podcast are purely pastoral. We have no desire to tell you how to vote, and this is not a thinly veiled attempt to do so. We want to pastor you. Second, while we believe that the destruction of a human life is utterly devastating, we deny that any such sin is so big as to put the cross in its shadow. Statistically, it's very likely that multiple people in our church have had abortions, and we are eager and happy to extend the love and grace of God in the gospel to you. No sin puts the cross in its shadow. The cross puts every sin in its shadow. And third, while we believe that the termination of a life that God is knitting together in the womb is morally black and white, we deny that all Christians must respond to this event in the same way. Some will celebrate publicly, and some distrust social media's power to transform and believe the medium is utterly incapable for changing lives, and they'll remain quiet online. Some will hold up signs of celebration, and others will quietly weep for joy before the Lord. We have not, and we will not micromanage our church. We will not micromanage our church people's responses because that's sloppy pastoral work. However, we believe that the proper response is worship and adoration of God for moving justice forward in the world. Fourth, while we affirm that women have been historically oppressed, and that brings us great sorrow, we deny the accusation that pro-life Christians are motivated by the desire to control and oppress the bodies of women. 
God loves women, and in fact, God, God loves women so much that he mourns when little women are terminated in the tomb. Historically, up until about the last 100 years, when Christianity has been criticized, it's been criticized for, quote, being the religion of slaves, women, and children. God loves women. And fifth, while we have strong and resolute convictions, we deny that we have any desire to ostracize, wound, or demonize people who are simply struggling with this topic. If this podcast wounds you or hurts you, talk to us. We love you and it's precisely this love that's motivating our desire to record this podcast. And lastly, there's been no shortage of name calling and horrendous stone slinging around this topic. And so we're under no illusion that there won't be anybody out there listening to this podcast that wants to respond by shaming us or name calling. And all I ask is that if you want to throw stones, you throw your stones at me. Chloe's recording this podcast as a church member and a volunteer. I'm the guy that gets to do this full-time as a pastor. So if you have beef, the name is Cold Ikey. And so as we transition to the podcast, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I want to start with a short story. In 1946, George Orwell strolled through the streets of London in April while his country was in the middle of a life-draining and life-sucking and life-exhausting war. And so while war was on his mind, and while war was in the hearts of all of his friends and family, and while war dominated the civic conversation of the day, filling thoughts with cynicism and downcast, Orwell went for a walk in the middle of April. And on his walk, Orwell noticed the birds chirping and the tadpoles dancing in the roads. All these beautiful small signs that winter was almost over and spring was arriving. And Orwell, after his walk, took up his journal and he wrote this sentiment. Quote, Spring is here. Even in London during the war, and they can't stop you from enjoying it." End quote. Spring is here, and they can't stop you from enjoying it. Church, we'll come back to that sentiment later in the podcast. All right, well, hey, church. Uh, this is Cole. I am one of the pastors at Frontier Church, and it's been a while since you've heard my voice on the podcast, so welcome back to Worship Local. Um, today, I've got somebody special joining me, the notorious C- uh, <laughs> my partner in crime, P-I-C, the notorious C-H-L-O-E, Chloe. Can you say hi? Hi. Hello, everybody. And uh, Chloe, how do you function in the church? Um, well, I am a, a, a deacon of women. And deacon of women. I serve in the Roots Room occasionally with mm-hmm. the kids. Hero of the faith. And I am married to the pastor, Cole Dykey. Carrier too. of your cross. <laughs> <laughs> your cross to carry. <laughs> yes, and th- those are the main ones. You're a community group leader, too. Oh, my gosh, yeah. 
I forget. It's a big that. deal. I mean, that's yeah. like one of the main things our church does. <laughs> I mean, it's not a big deal on a <laughs> weekly basis. You're cooking for people, staying up late, counseling and ministering to people and leading them through the, the scriptures, you know. So community <laughs> group leader. <laughs> yes, that one. And uh, let me just go ahead and make some. We are we are excited um, to be talking about this topic. And what we want to do is we want to we want to kind of tackle what's it mean that Roe v. Wade was overthrown. We want to talk about our first impressions, and we also want to give a vision for why Christians are passionate about um, justice for the unborn in three different categories: theologically, biblically, historically. Um, before we tackle any of those subjects, though. Let's just make an excuse right away. We just got done with lunch, and it was Jethro's, and it was phenomenal. It was so good, but I'm starting to feel the the post-Jethro's crash coming on. I don't know about you. Right, yeah. And we are also surrounded on all sides by Legos, mm-hmm. oblivion of Legos. An island of Legos. Yes, yeah. So it's a good example of just like living through the chaos. That's and right. yeah, our, our right. children are around and some of them are awake, one of them. And so just a warning that there might be. We don't be. know where the other one is. If anybody out there is, <laughs> has seen her, please let us know. She's asleep. She's asleep. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and um, anyway, yep. So we might have the little ones coming to say their own things. Mm-hmm. Have to take a break. Just a little warning about that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good lunch though. At one point in time, Della was eating a candle instead of the Jethro's that we put in front of her. So that's great. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to see. Yeah, you wrote that in your book of future sermon illustrations. <laughs> I know. It reminded me of uh, C.S. Lewis's quote on how we are all like children who prefer the mud pies from the slums because we don't know what's offered to us by a vacation at sea. Yeah. You know, that preference of you exactly. know sin over holiness. I'm just going to eat this candle, an edible candle. You got Jethro sitting in front of you, and you <laughs> eat the can. <laughs> okay, we don't. I should probably save that for a sermon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, um, let's let's jump into it, Chloe. I think so. I think what would be helpful for our church is for. I think the most natural thing in the world is for people in our church to look towards their spiritual leaders and to simply wonder, what do you guys think about everything that's happening in the world? And so I just think it'd be helpful if um, in an unfiltered way, without putting a muzzle on either one of us, I just think it'd be helpful for our church to just hear about how are, how are we responding to Roe v. Wade being overthrown? What were some of your first impressions? How'd you feel? Just kind of walk us through that. Yeah. Um, I've decided that a word that describes my reactions most accurately is amazed because mm. I was very shocked. There was definitely like a shock factor, even though, you know, leaked in May, like kind of knew this was coming, still feels very sudden and new as something that I've, I've wanted Roe versus Wade to be overturned for a long time and for it to be overturned is just shocking i just i didn't realize how much i was wanting that but not really expecting it (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so yeah lots of shock and then um Mm -hmm. you know excitement it's Mm -hmm. good news yeah um but then like getting on social media uh just kind of awakened a lot of emotions in me and because 
there are lots of positions and there are lots of people speaking very um, strongly about them, persuasively about them. Um, mm -hmm. And just, yeah, I mean, it, it just is a really heavy subject. It just is a heavy subject. And so I'm sure everybody listening has seen um, seen the, the weight of it all <laughs> and maybe has felt similar to me in just having like a wave of emotions. And so I felt a lot of emotions of just seeing the arguments laid out for and against and um, just yeah. like all the yeah. issues that also are brought up alongside the issue of abortion that were just like all weighing on me, you know, like just feeling like the sadness and the despair about Right. Like vulnerable women in, in their pregnancies and feeling the anger and frustration at um, the lies that are being told or the lack of value of life overall that women feel so trapped by pregnancy and hmm. um, feeling just like desperate about the, you know, as much as Christians are working and like some Christians pouring their whole life into this issue of abortion and um, into supporting women in their pregnancies and mm -hmm. children when they're born and all of those things, like still seeing the desperation of like so much work to do. And, um, yeah, I think just as Christians, we are to hold all of those things. I feel like that right, is very right. spirit led that God wants us to see all of the, you know, like domino effect of things. Um, right. So yeah, to like have that feeling of rejoicing and happiness, uh, or, you know, like, victory but also like so much work ahead of us at the same time um and it, as much as i didn't really realize it i was thinking that like overturning roe versus wade would just kind of eliminate the issue of abortion much more than it really seems to be eliminating the issue of abortion yeah yeah that's well said and since so since you coined your own word for how you felt, mm -hmm. I'll, I'm going to do the same. I'm, yes. not as, I'm not as good as you. I'm not as precise as you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use two words rather than one. Oh, okay. I felt um, joyfully disoriented. Mm -hmm. I think that would be my two words, joyfully disoriented. Yeah. Um, joyful, because just like you, I'm, I'm radically committed to a pro-life worldview. We'll get into that a little bit more on why, why that is, not because of any type of political affiliation, but because of my belief that the revealed truth of God is the foundation for truth in the world. Um, for sure is why I'm, I'm a pro-life person. And so this was a, a big win and a great step in the right direction. But the disoriented piece comes from uh, three different spots. First, because for whatever reason, and I don't know if this is my own pessimism, like you, I just didn't expect to see this in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it was joyfully disorienting in that way. But there's a couple other ways it was disorienting. Um, the second way is that... Um, there are there are particular spiritual leaders who I thought I knew exactly where they stood on this issue, and it turned out that I was wrong. And mm -hmm. so I was disoriented by that. And um, thirdly, because there were particular people who I knew were not pro-life, but I thought were kind human beings who instead have said some really, really, really mean-spirited um, harmful and hurtful things and accusations against Christians. It's been really like disorienting to mm -hmm. see the world um, lash out. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's some voices out there that you just, you expect them to lash out. But there's some other voices where you're like, whoa, dude, that's, mm -hmm. 
not a fair thing to say to somebody, no matter what you think about this. And so joyfully disoriented is my answer. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, been a lot to just process of what is next. Um, or just, yeah, just a process. The fact that there are emotions attached to this that are unexpected. <laughs> yes, yes. And so I want to spend the bulk of our conversation in three different categories, biblically, historically, and theologically. Why do Christians care about justice for the unborn? Um, we're, like, we're not interested in starting an argument or winning an argument. All I want to do is pastor people um, mm-hmm. and just give that sort of biblical, theological, historical overview for why Christians are passionate about um, passionate about justice and justice for uh, the unborn, um, hopefully justice from womb to tomb, mm-hmm. um, right? So like justice for the unborn, um, justice for those experiencing socioeconomic injustice, um, racial injustice, um, environmental injustice. For me as a Christian, they all fit underneath the same category, which is God's desire for justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Christians have this desire for justice. But before we tackle those three categories, um, let's just talk from a technical perspective. What's it mean that Roe v. Wade was overthrown? I'm going to key off of you. Um, you're more competent in this area than I think I am. And so can you just give us an overview of like what it means and what it doesn't mean that Roe v. Wade was overthrown? Um, yeah. So to try to say it concisely and accurately, I guess, um, you know, Roe versus Wade was... Um, I guess the ruling there was that women have the right to abortion. It's protected by the Constitution, by like the 14th, Amend- 14th Amendment's right to liberty and, and then therefore privacy. And therefore, um, that was kind of the argument. And so that's been like 40 plus years. And then um, the recent ruling is that Roe versus Wade is overturned um, because it's not a um the right to abortion is not secured within the constitution is pretty much the gist of it and um so yeah so that means that it's returned to the states so each state gets to decide their abortion laws and that means that it does have the possibility within each state to be um restricted completely Whereas it didn't, there what there wasn't an option to completely restrict abortion before the ruling last Friday, right? Is yes. that about it? Yes, and I think that's a really helpful clarification because if all you were going to do um, is just look at the public discourse right now, um, mm-hmm. if you looked at public discourse right now, you would think that Roe v. Wade was, um, you know, making uh, abortion illegal in all 50 states almost immediately. But like you said, that's not what's happening. Instead, it's going to the state level. Um, And one conservative estimate that I read suggested that this decision is probably going to eliminate 10 to 12 or reduce reduce abortion by 10 to 12 Mm percent. I don't know what data or statistics they used in order to get that number, but I thought maybe it'd be helpful to get a number out there. So um, for Christians who desire for the voiceless and um, the unborn to receive justice, like this is not the end zone, this is uh, red zone, right? We're at the 20-yard line, mm-hmm. 10-yard line. Um, we're not in the end zone yet. Yeah. Yes, and it really feels like in some ways a lot more um, 
power is returned to the people and that we can vote in our like our local uh, elections for our local politicians and stuff to be making the laws that we feel like we want and will best serve our state, which is great. But it also is like, um, yeah, I just feel like that desperation that I was talking about earlier of like making sure that uh, we are making the right moves and, you know, very committed to influencing our state's laws, what we can influence. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's good. So let's jump into those categories theologically, biblically, and historically. Why have Christians been passionate about justice for the unborn? Let's start theologically. Um, do you have kind of an off-the-cuff answer, Chloe, like theologically, why are Christians passionate about justice for the unborn? Um, well, I guess I don't know exactly what you're going to say, but I no, guess... No, go, go, go. Yeah, doesn't matter what I'm going to say. You go first. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, theologically being that we believe that um, life begins in the womb with a fertilized egg, like at conception. So um, we also believe that that life is a human life in the image of God, mm-hmm. that it bears God's image, that that baby is um, bearing God's image from the very beginning. And therefore, yeah. um, it needs to be treated and, and respected as a life from the get-go. Yeah, that's perfect. Let's, let's hit slow motion and let's just move through those concepts in slow motion. Because um, you mentioned a huge theological concept. And this is the concept, this is the theological concept that every concept of equality rests on. Um, right. I mean, if you look back into the ancient world, there's no concept for equality in Rome. Are you kidding me? Like there was a hierarchy of worth and value that began with slaves, then made its way up to children, then women and then men and then wealthy men at the top. Like there's no concept for equality out there besides the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so it's a distinctly and robust Christian concept for the concept of equality, which is rooted in the Imago Dei. Um, which is not pulled out of thin air. Here's Psalm 139. This is David. And David says, quote, For you created my inner being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. So when, when, when King David is talking about the value and the worth of his life, he says, You, God, knit me together so your hands were on me, your, your heart was set on me, your eyes were looking at me, your love was resting on me. You were working me together in my mother's womb. And so this is where we get our understanding that human life begins at conception and that the love of God is set on individual human lives while they're in the womb. And this is also why we have a concept of image of God, right? We're not just saying... People have worth and value because we think they should have worth and value. We believe that God's impressed his image on them. So, like, do you have, like, a, a nutshell answer for, like, what's it mean that people are created in the image of God? Um, I don't know if I have anything beyond what you said, but to sum it up, 
that God has um, created us with a particular value, with like a particular spirit that is um, resembling Him. Yeah, and it's it's a uh, it's a concept that I think you can get a little bit greater insight when you think about it historically. So like when uh, when the Old Testament was written, um, kings had to think creatively about how to extend their rule and reign over their empires because they didn't have social media, they didn't have news, they didn't have um, telephones, they didn't have Twitter, and so they couldn't extend their rule and reign in those particular ways. And so how would a king extend his rule and reign in an ancient world? Well, he would make images of himself. And so in his kingdom, in places that were far away from him, but were still underneath his rule and reign, he would make statues of himself. And that way, people who are a long physical proximity away from that king would see the images of their king and be reminded, oh yeah, this is that king's kingdom. And so I exist to extend his rule and reign over here. That's my job. And uh, what the Bible says is, we're like God's statue on earth. We're his image bearers. Our job is to extend the rule and reign of God on this earth. And so that like endows us with unbelievable inherent dignity that can't be taken away no matter what people do to us and no matter what mistakes we make in life. Every human being comes with the dignity that they are like a statue of God's mm-hmm. on this earth to extend his rule and reign. And um, that begins in, in the womb. That's mm-hmm. an image bearer of God in the womb. Yeah. Which I think is, I, I don't know, I think it's profound. Have you ever thought about image of God that way? I think maybe I've preached on it once or twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, as like the statue image. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that helps bring a little more clarity by to what image is. <laughs> you know, like it's literally mm-hmm. God can be seen through his um, created people. So through us, through people, all people. Yeah, it's profound because that means that when I look at you and I see you, I'm supposed to remember, oh, right, she belongs to God and this world belongs to God. Um, when, I, when I saw the first sonogram of our kids in the womb, I'm supposed to think, oh, right, Jesus rules and reigns and that's his statue mm-hmm. that Chloe's pregnant with right now. And that's a pretty cool feeling. That's a really cool feeling. And one of the ways that comes through um, in the Bible is um, the the Bible's complete and total and utter opposition to child sacrifice in any shape or form, right? And we can get into that a little bit more in uh, kind of our biblical argument. But one story that I think really demonstrates the theological worth and value of a human life is the story of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and the sacrifice. So tell us that story. Okay. Um, so as, we, as we start with our kids, once upon a time. <laughs> once upon a time, there was Abraham, and he was commanded by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So Abraham went with his son up to the hill to make an altar, prepared this, you know, prepared everything to sacrifice him, and then, um, you know, like, I mean, there was, like, pleading and stuff. It wasn't like Abraham was, like, just joyfully going about this command, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but was following God's command. And, and um, at 
just before the moment of actually performing sacrifice, God intervened mm-hmm. and stopped it. And he provided the sacrifice. Yes. Provided right. the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Yeah. And so um, I've even heard this from some unbelievers in the, the, you know, the last week of like, oh, how can Christians be so pro-life when their God was in favor of Abraham sacrificing Isaac? Now, that's the wrong interpretation, and that's the wrong reading of the story. The point of the story is not that God asked Abraham uh, to sacrifice Isaac. Um, He didn't. The point of the story is that God did not command for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so the point of the literary story is that God is not like that. So, I mean, the most common assumption in the ancient world would have been, yeah, to demonstrate your allegiance to your God, whoever that God might be, the ultimate sacrifice that you could give to that God would be the sacrifice of what's most important to you, your child. As a result of that, in the ancient world, we see a lot of child sacrifice, most notably through Moloch. Like, there's lots of literature in the Bible about uh, uh, Moloch and the, the god of child sacrifice. He was like this, this bronze statue of a god that had this furnace for a belly. Um, where worshipers of Moloch would go with their children and throw their children in. It was horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the ancient world, like, that's what you would expect your God to require of you, to sacrifice what's most important to you. And uh, so as you're reading that story in Genesis of Abraham and Isaac, you're thinking, yeah, of course. There's, this is just a no-brainer. And for God to command Abraham to not sacrifice Isaac, and for God to, to, to provide a sacrifice in the place of Isaac is theology. Mm-hmm. What God is saying is that God is not like that. It's communicating that God finds child sacrifice abominable. And this is why God is utterly unlike the other ancient gods. Because he's impressed the image of God upon his people in a way that other Babylonian gods have not. And so like that's a really important story to see. Oh... When we see the rest of the prohibitions in the Old Testament, where God says he detests human sacrifice, they're rooted in that story. It's huge. That is huge. It's huge. It's really beautiful. Yeah. It, like People like, he was really close. No, he wasn't really close. It was a dramatic storytelling that demonstrated that Yahweh is not like the other gods. Mm-hmm. And so theologically our vision for providing justice and fighting for justice for the unborn is rooted in the theological concept of the image of God. But let's, let's take a, like a bigger biblical sweep at it. Um, so theologically, but now biblically, why are Christians pro-life? Do you have kind of a nutshell answer for that? Biblically? Yeah. Um, well, I feel like Psalm 139 already comes to mind which we covered mm-hmm. um i don't know i'm also thinking about like the commands to um love widows and orphans and care specifically for them yeah god's desire for justice for the the people who are oppressed yeah and wounded and downtrodden and voiceless mm-hmm. yeah yeah, that's good. 
Um, so let's start at let's start at Genesis then. Let's just kind of tie it together. Yeah. So in Genesis, what what God desires, the reason why He creates the cosmos and the world, is I mean this comes in like really clearly right away. Be fruitful and multiply. So God's desire is to fill the earth with His own glory by filling the earth with images of Himself. Um, and so we would expect right away that if God had an enemy, well, what would that enemy's plans be? To um, n- stop the filling of the earth and the fruitfulness and the multiplication. Yeah. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, territorialism. No, I don't want to see the earth filled with the the image of God, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what we would guess, and um, that's what we see. So in Genesis three, there's this figure that arrives who is the serpent. And what the serpent does is, through deception, the serpent introduces death. And this is the first step in the direction of trying to erase the image of God from the cosmos. Um, and then we flip our, 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 uh, our Bible over to the next book, which is Exodus. And uh, in Exodus, we see pretty much the exact same narrative begin to play out. God commands his people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with the glory of God. And just like in Genesis, we see another serpent-like figure who doesn't want to see that happen. But we bump into who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. (laughs) (laughs) And and if Pharaoh plays, uh, if if Pharaoh is going to be literarily consistent with... um, with uh, the serpent figure, then we're going to see Pharaoh try to do the same thing that serpent does, which is try to keep um, the image of God from filling the cosmos. And that's precisely what we see with Pharaoh. Pharaoh becomes infuriated when the people of Israel grow underneath the rule and reign of Egypt. He's even like a little bit freaked out because he fears that they'll like take over, right? And so he commands for all of the male babies who are born to Jewish women to be murdered. This is precisely the Satan figure in Genesis. Um, like, what do you have a read on this story? What's going on in Exodus? What are your, your uh, reactions to it, your response to it? Um, you know, I think about when we were in the sermon series of Exodus a few years ago, and you preached on this. It's one of my favorite sermons of yours, perhaps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically about like the midwives and um, who, you know, deceived Pharaoh in order to preserve the lives of the babies who were ordered to be killed. Yeah, it's actually a reversal of uh, Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, you see the serpent figure deceiving the women and the serpent wins. And in Exodus, you see the woman figure deceive the serpent and Mm -hmm. the woman wins. It's it's beautiful, whatever. But that that's an important piece that I always like to, to point out is it's a Genesis three reversal scene. It's a redemption scene. Mm-hmm. So awesome. Yeah, it is. It's just very magnificent. Yeah. And well, I'll make a concession here um, for people who are pro-choice. Um, even a pro-choice person would disagree with the actions of Pharaoh here. Right. So even a pro-choice person would say, of, of course, it's immoral to kill a baby that's already been born. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a Christian perspective, the one thing that we've already substantiated in our own theology is the claim that 
a, a person is a person completely and totally and holistically in the womb already. And so for us, those are not two different categories of person. There's not a person who's in the womb and a person outside of the womb. For us, that's an entire category of justice, which is there are people who are voiceless, who are powerless, who are helpless, who have full human dignity, and all those persons are deserving of justice. And so like we do see the Pharaoh story as a strong indicator of God's desire for a pro-life worldview. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we see that in Pharaoh. And as we kind of keep, you know, opening up our scriptures, there's thematically that just happens all over. Again, I know I already kind of mentioned this, but the Canaanite God of Moloch becomes a big deal, specifically in Leviticus. It's this, it's this big bronze statue Canaanite God of a, a man with the head of a bull and um, you know, the, the Canaanites are said to have boiled their children alive in the bowels of the statue. It's disgusting stuff. And in five different places in the book of Leviticus, God says, this is an abomination to, to Yahweh. Do not do this in my name. Don't do this in my name. Um, and then, you know, we look at the New Testament and again, we see these Satan figures or these serpent figures who are compelled by the very same rationale as the serpent and as Pharaoh and as Moloch. Right? We, we turn our, our Bibles open to the New Testament, and who do we meet? Well, we meet Caesar, and he tries to persecute Christians. We turn our Bibles open to Revelation, and there's a dragon symbolically trying to swallow the child that represents Jesus. And so there's a strong biblical narrative um, that shows how there is an enemy, and that enemy's primary function is to eradicate the image of God from the world. And this is why Christians are really passionate about life. We just don't think it's possible to be partners with that. No. Um, so theologically, it's because of the image of God. Biblically, it's because of the strong narrative that God loves life and wants to fill the earth with his image. Um, but let's talk um, historically. Historically, why have Christians been pro-life? Um, I didn't prep you for this. Like, do you have any answers off the cuff or? Hmm. Um, I don't know necessarily how historically you're going to go back, I guess. So maybe you yeah. start and then I'll see. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know how far back you're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go all the way back. So, so before I go all the way back, let's start with Chloe. Um, I'm just, I'm curious. We talked a little bit about this last night. Um, but did you have a moment hmm. where you became committed to fighting for justice for the unborn? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I do. I, it was in high school and I had friends who were passionate about the subject and, um, I remember them bringing it up with me, just asking, like, what are your thoughts? And, um, yeah, honestly, I had just barely thought critically about it. And um, so my responses were like, well, you know, I can kind of see how in some instances it should be um, allowable. And they pressed into me about, you know, just really pressed in to make me define what life is and at what point Mm -hmm. does the scale switch and to have no answer like I, I think I just remember that 
moment of being like, okay, <laughs> it is so complicated and, um, you know, difficult to like consider all of the situations, but that we have to remain um, able to define what life is at any point that there is life. And we have to protect that, especially in the vulnerable places of in the womb. Um, yeah, so that was probably it in high school. <laughs> what yeah, about you? that's good. Um, so I started following Jesus freshman year of college. I don't remember a specific moment where I became passionate about justice for the unborn. Um, I, think, I think the reason why I don't have a singular moment is because when I became a believer in college, I was so passionate about Jesus that I was just excited to take on um, everything I was seeing in Christian culture. And so I don't think I really like put up much of a fight in my heart against it. I think I just kind of like, okay, if that's what God thinks, like let's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally all in on that. So I don't remember a specific moment. Mm -hmm. um, but so would you answer that question any differently now? The question of there are these horrifying circumstances sometimes, and they're a small percentage, in which women find themselves pregnant. Mm -hmm. How would you respond to that now? Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. I feel like nothing has I mean, my response, I just, you know, cycle through it sometimes to be like gut-wrenching to hear some of these situations that women are in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I have, I get to um, the point where, I mean, we can't, we just can't deny that there is life happening in the womb and as complicated and possibly traumatic as it might be for a woman there is um two lives that have to be protected both lives and i mean there are ways to support i just feel like right um yeah yeah i is really hard for me to talk about i guess because just knowing all of the nuances of of every situation, but knowing that like there are options and that it is unfairly being um, presented to a lot of women that there is only one option and that it is to terminate the life. And right, yeah, I know that there, yeah, yeah, it's not <laughs> easy to think about, but yeah, I think that we have to maintain that position of there's life in the womb as well that needs to be protected and and at the same time be very like hopeful and desperate f and longing for more and more medical advances that can decrease i guess the risks of carrying your baby and you know you know to be so much more supportive of women in their pregnancies i just feel like there's so much more to be fought for in that the right to abortion is not the, the right fight and Anyway, I don't. I feel like I'm going off in a direction right now. No, we needed you to go off in a direction. I feel like 
the person who's in that situation and the person who's asking that question, I think I just want to like give them a hug, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. cook them a meal, invite them into the Daiki household mm-hmm. and love them and serve them well. And I also realize that that's a question. And if you're going to treat any question with integrity, you can't just give a person a hug. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to treat any question with integrity and by doing so treat another human being with integrity, you've, you've got to do your best to give an answer because clarity is kindness. And I have to assume the reason why a person is asking a question is because they desire an answer. And so, um, after giving a hug and after cooking a meal, um, I, I simply have to come back to the fact that I believe that at conception, that human being is precisely a human being. And we've, as Christians, we have grounded that in, in the Psalms and we've grounded that in the biblical text, but this is not exclusively a Christian position. Um, there's an organization that represents one of many different secular pro-life organizations, but this organization is called Secular Pro-Life. And one of their four um, main stances is that the human zygote, embryo, and fetus are all human organisms. And this is their statement in their language. Quote, Life begins at fertilization is a shorthand way to say that the zygote is the first developmental stage of a human being's life cycle. This is not a religious premise. It is a biological fact attested to in countless biology and embryology texts and affirmed by the majority of biologists worldwide. And so if I really believe that, if I really believe like secular pro-life states that it's the first developmental stage of a human being's life cycle, then I must also believe by virtue of principle that there is no situation, no matter how horrifying it is, that makes a human being's life less human. You can't, in an age of slavery, you you can't make a a black brother or sister's vote count less, right? Two thirds or one third or whatever it was. If, if a human being is a human being, then at every level of that human being's life, that human being deserves to be treated like a human being. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a helpful point. And um, I, I don't know if it's... Yeah. I just think that there are a lot of um, concerns that people have surrounding you know, mm-hmm. the care of the mother and, and the woman. And um, I think those are valid and also like yeah. important for Christians to be fighting for. And I don't think that Christians haven't been doing that. And right. I just think it's it's an unfair accusation right now to be calling pro-life people to only care about, you know, to accusing people who are pro-life to be caring only about the baby in the womb and not after that. And I agree um, with you entirely. Yes. Yeah. And it also is frustrating because I feel like we are just in a position like in our country where like right now we have to start there. (laughs) I mean, it is kind of 
frustrating to be like there are many babies who will be born now who will have a lot of tragedy in their lives who will have a lot of trauma or like women who will have a lot of like lack of resources and you know things like that but like we can't even begin caring about that if we don't even uphold the value of life at all to begin with by saying it can be terminated in the womb you know so like i just feel like um uh, just it's a frustrating misunderstanding for me because i think we need to make progress in the way of limiting abortions and um also increasing the care for women in their pregnancies and just for like the overall message that um you know every person is worthy of a chance at a life even if there's a lot Mm -hmm. of evidence that their life is going to be hard even if there's a lot of evidence that there's going to be a lot of pain involved like we have to be upholding that it's still worth it and we need to make um you know we need to like work really hard to make that less and less of a thing that people's lives are going to be so hard just by being born but um even more important is justice for for the unborn first and yeah anyway so i'm i'm hope filled you know like like we mentioned the fact that it was hard or we often didn't really believe that this the overturning roe versus wade would happen Mm -hmm. I think that um, it has been, like, the component of my feeling of amazement is that, you know, like, it has happened and that God is making a way and that um, this fight is not in vain and um, God really does love his, you know, the humans. (laughs) He really does. And um, so I can believe that even though there are a lot of injustices going on in this world, a lot of people who are going to be born whose lives are going to be hard i can believe that there's still hope and i can believe that there is hope that as a nation we can be moving in a direction that better supports all of those things um people at all stages of their life but yeah i guess there is hope but desperation and um yeah yes um also maybe worth mentioning is like Uh, we are talking about like abortion as you know intended abortion intended death of a baby in the womb of a fetus and that there are like right now I'm hearing a lot of like you know there's like kind of this gray area that is very um kind of just confusing and ill-defined maybe right now of like Mm -hmm. Um, there are like medical procedures that women need that are sometimes referred to as abortions um, because they are like the removal of a deceased fetus or um, in cases of ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages and things like that. And I think a lot of people are concerned that those um, like that medical care is not being protected now that Roe is versus Wade is being overturned. And I feel like I'm having a hard time, like, getting a clear answer, you know, that I don't know that there's a clear answer that's, like, nationally that yeah. is definitely protected. But I think that it's pretty 
I mean, I think that the dan- the you know the possibility that is possible and freaky is that it won't be well defined, and then there might be a chance that doctors would be accused of abortions by performing the basic medical care for women in miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies and stuff like that. Anyway, um, I just think like hopefully we can all like be working to have very clear laws that are protecting that and that what we're talking about right now is intended abortion, like the intention ending, intentional ending of a currently live fetus. Right. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. See, that's what I'm talking about, where I'm talking about how I feel like you have more clarity on a lot of those issues than I do, because like bringing that level of clarification I think is really helpful for the integrity of this conversation. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, yes, I think that's like, um, you know, like a lot of Christians that I love and respect are very concerned about that right now, and I, I can see it. I can see why there's like, you know, there's just this gray area that I don't feel like a lot of um, people are using incorrectly to make a case that, um, you know, that women are not going to be, that our basic health care rights are being stripped from us. and. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, maybe there's a chance if only the laws are passed by people who are just, frankly, would have to be quite dumb. But yeah, yeah, totally. to not make that. But anyway, yes, I do just want to be yeah, acknowledging that. Yeah, and there's a lot of things to acknowledge in this conversation. Like, and I want to get around to that historically, why are Christians pro-life <laughs> question. Yeah. I do, um, but... When we talk about being passionate about justice for the unborn, and when we talk about being passionate about a pro-life worldview, that does not go hand in hand with being condemning towards people who have gone through abortions. Yeah. So um, it's, it's just a demonstrable fact that four out of 10 women who have an abortion are regular church attenders. That's a, a statistic from a couple of years ago. And so the likelihood is that there are a handful or a half handful of women in our church who have had abortions. And as you hear Chloe and I talk about our passion for justice for the unborn and our desire for a pro-life worldview, we are not condemning you. We are a church that, that stands on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus alone. And you've got to know that Jesus has set his love on you entirely on the basis of your faith in Jesus. God does not choose to save people on the basis of whether they've had an abortion or not had an abortion. If you trust in Jesus, there is no sin that Jesus will not take away. There is no sin that is unforgivable. He covers you in his righteousness and he loves you. And I am honored to have you as part of our church and I love you, sister. So I just want, I know our people know us and they know that's how we feel, mm-hmm. um, but let's not leave it up to intuition. I just want to say that mm-hmm. Jesus loves you a lot. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, now historically, there's also evidence and rationale and reasons for why Christians have affiliated themselves with uh, the pro-life movement. And um, from the earliest notes of first century Christians, the church has been decidedly passionate about um, justice for the unborn. And it's worth saying this, okay? Um, So have you seen the argument, the basic, I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis would call it chronological snobbery. 
the idea that newer is always better and that older is always worse. But a lot of people are like, man, we're going back. Mm -hmm. This is a step backwards. Like we need to keep on moving forward into the future. And this is so backwards. Like, have you heard that argument? Yeah. Yeah, I have. So here's the problem with that argument. Abortion is older than Christianity. This was practiced in Rome. This was a Roman practice. Women had a right in Rome um, to abort children. And so at a technical level, abortion is more old-fangled than Christianity is. Mm -hmm. And so the Christian ethic and uh, the Christian worldview for the sanctity of life is actually the more futuristic, newer position. <laughs> and so if you want to continue to move into the future, there's a reason why as science has gained more and more perspective on exactly where uh, human life begins, there's a reason why um, Roe v. Wade is older than the newest ruling. And that's because science continues to attest to what the Christian scriptures say, that mm -hmm. human life begins at conception. And so, like, it's just not a valid argument. Okay, mm -hmm. like, Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were lots of crazy stuff that was going on at Rome, and we can maybe dig in that a little bit more. But um, let me just continue to give a little bit more of a historical argument. The earliest non-canonical literature that we have um, to tell us what Christianity was like in the first century was the Didache. Okay, so the Didache was basically an instruction guide for how Christians should practically live their lives in the Roman Empire. Um, it's not in your Bible. It's not one of the 66 books of the Bible. I don't believe that it belongs in the Bible, but nevertheless, it gives you a great insight into how Christians who were living right after the Bible was written interpreted it. And in the second chapter of the Didache, the book draws heavily on the Gospels and the Psalms and the Proverbs, but in the second chapter of the Didache, it plainly states, quote, do not abort a fetus or kill a child that is just born. So again, this is one of many different pieces of evidence that we have um, that abortion was being practiced in Rome, which demonstrates that abortion is not progressive. It's mm -hmm. ancient. It's not a new practice that's, quote, on the right side of history, it's an ancient barbaric practice that originated with Rome. In Rome, women had the right to abort children. And this is even worse. Um, I don't know if you know this, but men could throw away unwanted babies that were just born. Did you know that? Mm -mm. Uh, yeah. So um, Rome had this practice called the presentation of the child or showing the baby where after a baby was born, um, the midwife would bring the baby to the man and present it to the man. And the man would look the baby over from head to toe, and if he saw any defects, if he saw anything he didn't like, he had the right to throw it away in, in the dump. And many Romans did this. And the reason why they did this is because they had no basis for human equality or dignity. They lived in a hierarchy of human beings where some human beings had more personhood than others. And so they didn't care about the Imago Dei. And so it made sense from an ancient perspective that they could just toss the child if they didn't want to. Christians, what they would do in the first century is they would go to the dump. And what they would do 
is they would rescue these children from death. When mm-hmm. these people were thrown away, when these unwanted babies were discarded, Christians were there to collect them. And um, this is actually one of the ways that Christianity grew in the ancient world so fast. Scholars always look back and they wonder, how did ancient Rome not survive and how did Christianity survive? Like Christianity was a small, well, one of the ways they did is because Christians took on the people that Rome didn't want. I mean, Pliny was one of the oldest critics, a Roman critic of Christianity, and his big accusation against Christianity was that it was a religion for women and children and slaves. Mm, He hated that. This was Nietzsche's criticism. Obviously, Nietzsche was not in ancient Rome, Mm -hmm. but his criticism was that Christianity prioritized the weak in society and not the strong. Mm. And it's true. And so Christianity grew because they took on the people that the rest of the world threw away. And when these babies grew up, they grew up underneath and in Christian households, hearing the word of God, being born again by the Spirit. And that's how Christianity took over the ancient world. Um, So I don't want to overstate it, but I don't want to understate it either. And so it's not wrong to say that one of the reasons why in 21st century America you heard the name of Jesus and became a Christian is because the church in the first century was (laughs) pro-life. So there's this big historical backbone for why Christianity has has landed there. Yeah. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Super insightful and interesting and also... Yes, of course. Like, that is my faith. That is what I believe. And I believe that has what the Spirit has been moving in his, in his people since the beginning. So mm. that's inspiring. And I know that because of our theological bent, there's just not going to be a lot of our people in Frontier Church who are pro-choice. But I'm also not a fool. We've... Like, we've got a diverse people group, and so I know that there are a handful of people in our church who are um, pro-choice. And I want you to know that the reason why the elders at Frontier and you and me are pro-life is not because of any sort of political affiliation. We have no desire whatsoever for the church to be in partnership with Caesar at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just hope and pray that you'll give us the benefit of the doubt. Because a lot of people right now are not giving Christians the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, They're saying things, like I've heard the argument, um, this isn't about Jesus. This isn't about the Bible. This isn't about religion. This is about people wanting to control what women do with their bodies. And I would just say to you, how do you know that? You don't even know the own secret motives in your own heart. So who gave you this secret imparted knowledge of what's going on in the hearts and minds of Christians who desire pro-life? Like, I I just don't think it's fair to make that assumption Mm -hmm. that we just want to control women's bodies. Mm -hmm. We, We genuinely believe that at conception, what that is in the human womb is a human life. Um, and if we truly believe that, I think it would be highness if we didn't have any stake in protecting a human life, right? Yeah. And so, like, I just pray that you at least give us the benefit of the doubt. Right, yeah. And, like, for Christians um, who are passionate about pro-life, I just pray that you'll also give pro-choice people the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. 
Um, even though there's a historical, theological, biblical reason for why Christians should be pro-life, um, that doesn't mean that you have to assume the worst motive out of everybody who disagrees with you. It could be because they genuinely care about women's bodies and don't have the knowledge that God knits together human lives and the wombs. And by throwing stones at them rather than using wisdom and reason and logic, it may be hurting Christian witness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying don't be passionate about it. Mm-hmm. I'm saying don't be mean about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah. Okay. We're going long. Can we just end with a a simple question? Um, Given all of this, how should we respond as Christians, Club? Okay, church, we are, we're back. We've we've had a few technical difficulties, (laughs) a couple. In recording this podcast, so sorry we got we got cut off right there. But let's, as we bring this podcast to a close, we Chloe and I we just want to end with a a question that we think could be really really clarifying. And that question is, how then should we respond to Roe v. Wade being overthrown? Um, I've got a couple statistics that I kind of want to blast through. I'm stealing these statistics from, I think, Mike Householder. Is that the name of the pastor over at Lutheran Church of Hope? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm pretty sure that's his name. So I'm stealing these statistics from him. The advice is my own. I'm stealing his stats. Um, He wrote a great letter to his church. For as much grief as I give megachurch models, uh, he did an awesome job pastoring his church. I highly recommend people read that. So... I'll get to my statistics when we get to them. Chloe, do you want to just kick us off? Like, how would you say, um, you know, the average Christian at Frontier is looking at you and saying, "How? What's the appropriate way for us to respond?" What would you say? Um, well, I think one thing that is um, worth noting is just that there are a lot of like po- possible emotions that you might be feeling, and um, mm-hmm. just like with the weightiness of it all, and with the. Uh, I don't know, just all of the angles that are being presented to us with such ferocity. I think that it's um, easy to feel a pressure to like give your identity to something other than the gospel right now. And I know that it has been really, I just really needed to like submit all my feelings to the Lord, pour my heart out to the Lord in prayer and um, just in honesty and be like, uh, you know, just to help me work through some of the confusing aspects that I was, you know, confronted with. And um, and just because, um, you know, the Spirit guides us and the Lord wants to listen. Jesus is ready to listen to all of your frustrations or all of your excitements or just, you mm-hmm. know, all of your, like, what is next? And... Um, yeah, so I think that's that's a good one is to like just pour your heart out to the Lord in prayer. Like maybe after this podcast, stop and have a minute mm-hmm. just to thank the Lord for the work that is being done. Um, yeah. And to see um, just like what's next, you know, ask him what's next. Yeah, can you. I say something on this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I think this is 
probably the, this is the best advice I think you can give anybody in responding like to Roe v. Wade being overthrown is prayer. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the reasons why I think it's the best advice you can give anybody is because I actually think that's what the saints in heaven around the throne of God right now are doing. Mm -hmm. Right when we get a peek at Revelation 6 and we see the saints who have been um, who have gone before us to heaven, who have died and are at the throne of God, it's kind of jarring because in Revelation 6, those who are surrounding God are praising Him and um, they're beholding Him and they're singing praises for His glory. But in Revelation 6, the, the, the saints at the throne are also saying, How long, O Lord? until you establish justice on earth. Mm -hmm. And so even even the saints on earth, and they're, they're talking specifically about um, Christians being persecuted and, and murdered, but I think, it, I think it applies for any issue of justice, whether that's environmental justice or racial justice or religious justice, or in this case, justice for the unborn. But even those who are in the beauty of the Lord right now in heaven are still asking, God, when are you going to completely establish justice on earth? Mm -hmm. Like praise God for what you've done. And yet we want justice to cover the earth perfectly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I just think that I feel a little bit of that longing in me is like, you know, the mixture of like, what an amazing milestone. Also, even a stronger desire for more justice. Yes. So yes. Yeah. I love that. That's really good. Um, yeah. So pour your heart out to the Lord. Um, also, I suggest like get together with a trusted Christian friend, somebody mm -hmm. that you can like soundboard ideas um, with and who you can like maybe brainstorm some practical ways of what it might look like for you personally in your life to um, serve and, and support um, the unborn and women in unplanned pregnancies. And um, I mean, there are lots of options mm -hmm. and yeah. something for everybody, whether it's just giving financially or volunteering your time at a crisis pregnancy center or whatever it might, might be. Um, uh, there's so many options. Um, so yeah, I suggest like it was helpful for me to do that. Just pour up my heart to some friends that I trust, um, who can just kind of affirm and encourage and brainstorm with me. Um, yeah, like keep the dialogue open. Uh, also I would be willing to meet with people and keep chatting about this. Like there's yeah. just so much yeah. to keep talking about that can't even be covered here. So yeah, I like your next steps too, because, um, one is horizontal and then one is vertical, right? And so, you, you know, first start vertical, respond in prayer with the Lord, mm -hmm. and then go horizontal with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I really like that. Mm -hmm. That's good. Okay, so I'll, I'll blast through mine. I've been long-winded in this podcast. Obviously, <laughs> we're going long here. Same. Appropriately so, you know, with a, uh, with a subject like this. So let me just blast through my kind of next steps. Um, here's kind of the first statistic I think is worth noting. Roughly one in four women have had an abortion and four out of 10 who have had abortions attend church regularly. And so I think in response to Roe v. Wade being overthrown, um, churches must rediscover and continue to preach the gospel, which is the good news that in Christ alone, our sins are forgiven and we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And people have to know that people are made righteous on the basis of of faith in Jesus and not on the basis of whether or not they've had an abortion. Um, people who have had abortions are sitting in our church and they're sitting in many churches and they need to know that they are forgiven and washed and pure and beloved in Jesus because of the gospel. Yeah. 
Amen. So redouble up on your commitment to the gospel church. Um, second statistic, um, six out of 10 women who had an abortion say that the main reason they chose to have an abortion was pressure from the father of the baby. I have things I want to say about this. Do you have any gut feelings about this one, Chloe? Um, no. I mean, other than n- nothing. I just think it's really hard to hear. But you go ahead. Seven out of ten say the reason, the main reason they had an abortion was pressure from the father of the baby. And so in conversations about... Um, in conversations about abortion, um, we need to stop shaming the women and pointing the finger at the women and realize that this is primarily an issue of weak men and men who are not connected and men who are not committed. And so in response to Roe v. Wade being overthrown, I believe that the church must ask men to do a better job being family men, being committed, because the dominant reason that women are getting abortions is not because of women, but because of the peer pressure of irresponsible and cowardly men. Um, And so in the pursuit of obtaining justice for the unborn, we cannot only ask women to make sacrifices. We must ask men to make sacrifices too to step up, to be present in the lives of their children, to support women, to do a better job discipling young men who do a better job being committed. This is about dudes too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last statistic is seven out of 10 women who had an abortion say it's the hardest decision that they ever made. Um, And so in response to this, I would just give the church a vision for being an ark. And I'm saying an ark because in Exodus, when Pharaoh demands that all male Jewish babies be murdered, Moses's mother does something amazing. She practices civil disobedience. It's like one of the first times in history that civil disobedience, it's I think the first time in scriptures where civil disobedience is recorded. Moses' mother makes a little basket and she safely sends Moses down the river so that he can live. And um, this is meant to be written in conjunction with Genesis. It's supposed to be a recapitulation of the, the ark narrative in Genesis. It's supposed to be a little bit of an ark salvation story. And so um, I think that churches should function like that. They should function like that safe basket. They should function like that ark. We should... Be the place that people, when they're unable to care for human lives, people place their kids in the church. We should speak well of adoption and pray about adoption. The church has done an awesome job at this historically. The majority of adoptions are demonstrably Christians. The vast majority of foster care, care, demonstrably Christians. The majority of homelessness care, demonstrably Christian. And these are all demonstrable facts. And so the church... Mm -hmm has by no means been perfect, but they have done an excellent job in being an ark for the world, an ark for uh, human lives that don't receive dignity and value from the world, and a, a safe basket for lives to be thrown in so that they might survive the flood and, uh, and live. And so those are, those are my three, I think. Mm-hmm. Be committed to the gospel, mm-hmm. build better men, and be an ark. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. I, I want to add one really quick thing, which is going to yeah. just, um, that I just thought of that popped into my head. Um, just as 
parents and for the other parents out there. Um, just like how, how easy it is for me to see, like, to accidentally lean in to this idea that, like, man, kids are just hard work. Kids are just um, a burden. And I oh, think... I like where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is um, just a powerful thing to be able to just celebrate the work that kids are and celebrate the kids that you have in your life. You know, that goes a long way. And it's just easy to be neutral about it and instead be more proactive Mm -hmm. in, um, yeah, seeing the blessing that their lives are in this world. Yeah, we should, we should, uh, the church should build a culture where children are re-enchanted and celebrated, you know, and Mm -hmm. yeah, don't roll our eyes at kids and only talk about them as nothing more than a burden. I like that a lot. It's easy to do. I mean, that's why I have to work hard at that. Mm. Sweet. Okay. Hey, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Yes. It is a pleasure to be able to talk about this really difficult topic. And um, I would love to hear more from our church if they want to talk to me about it. Um, Yeah. Mm. I also am just really proud of our church. and. Me too. Our response to this, so. Me too. Thanks for doing this. You've had a couple long night conversations with people face-to-face already, so thanks for jumping on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And thanks for being married to me. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, well, before this gets too mushy, let me end with a story. There's this beautiful story about George Orwell living in the middle of a war-crazed London And one day, Orwell, tired about reading of war and war and more war, and instead of reading about more and more war, Orwell decided to go for a walk outside in the middle of April one year. And while Orwell was walking, he took note of all the life that was springing up everywhere around him and all of the beautiful weather that was rolling in with April. And he went home, and Orwell wrote this one sentence that I haven't forgotten since he wrote it. He wrote, quote, Spring is here, even in London during the war, and they can't stop you from enjoying it. End quote. Mm -hmm. So Frontier Church, there is a war, and it is a loud war filled with the artillery and bombs of loud opinions and mean-spirited criticisms. But I want to encourage you, spring is here, and they can't stop you from enjoying it. So don't let the comments drown out your praise. Don't let the news keep you down. New life is springing up and nobody can stop you from enjoying it. The kingdom of life is overtaking the domain of death and nobody can stop you from enjoying it. Heaven is invading earth and no one can stop you from enjoying it. (laughs) Church, spring is here and nobody can stop you from enjoying it.